Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called The Liberator. It's by Stuff National Correspondent and longtime friend of The Long Read, Charlie Mitchell. Hello, Charlie. Hello. Uh, the Liberator, this is a goodie, but it's a few years old, so um, set it up for us. Sure. So this is a story about a man named uh, Stuart Smith, and his life mission was to was to stock the waterways of New Zealand with exotic fish. Um, and not just any fish, he was specifically keen on fish used for coarse fishing, um, which is a popular hobby where he grew up in the UK. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know what coarse fishing is, it's fishing for a particular type of fish with rough skin, usually fish you wouldn't want to eat. Um, and it's quite popular amongst the working class in, in London, um, but also further in the UK. Think of like perch, gudgeon, tench, fish that we do not have in New Zealand. Um, and, and, and for Stuart, his, his sort of mission in life was to bring these fish uh, that he enjoyed angling for in his childhood to New Zealand. And so what was the reason for this drive? Why was he so bent on, on bringing these exotic fish that weren't here and didn't really belong here to New Zealand? He had this, uh, I guess you'd call it a sentimental view of, um, of course, fishing. Um, he, he had this very firm idea that New Zealand was bereft of, of great fish. Um, and it's not really true, obviously. We have uh, plenty of native fish. But he had this, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a kind of colonising view where he felt the fish that he grew up with um, and the ones he, he so enjoyed angling for uh, were, you know, something that children in particular would like to fish for. So, so he brought them over here for New Zealand's children, essentially. Um, and, and, of course, when you introduce these fish into New Zealand's waterways, um, they have... In effect, I, I guess similar to possums or rabbits or something, they're pests. They compete with our native fish and they have this um, terrible impact on the ecology of our fresh water. Um, and, and so his, his sort of you know romantic view of coarse fishing may have been all, all well and good where he grew up, but in New Zealand it, it had catastrophic impacts on, on our freshwater ecosystems. What, one of the things that struck me reading the story was it starts off like a guy who has perpetrated this eco-terrorism, basically, in secret. Like he was trying to do this discreetly or surreptitiously, but he was actually somewhat known in his time, which seems strange. Yeah, it is weird. Um, he, he definitely had this sort of notoriety, um, particularly amongst the, the authorities, biosecurity officials and, and, and conservationists, and, and they were all well aware of what he was doing, um, in part because he... He would tell people what he was doing. He he regularly wrote to, to newspapers in Auckland explaining what he was doing and, and what his intentions were. Um, I, I think the best example of this was a, a report written by the Department of Conservation in the early 2000s, which was about the the threats to Auckland's freshwater ecosystems. Um, and, and one of the major threats they found was Stuart Smith, that he was identified by name uh, many, many times in that report. Um, and the report's authors even went around and, and spoke to farmers and, and people like that who reported seeing him sort of uh, prowling around, releasing fish into various lakes and rivers, 
um, he was well into his 80s at this point, and he, it didn't take a lot of um, you know, figuring out to figure out who he was. Um, and, and that's just kind of the person he was. He sort of enjoyed the chase in some ways, I think. He, he liked being a notorious person, um, and he became very well known for his deeds. All right, let's get into it. Thanks, Charlie. Here is me reading Charlie's story, The Liberator. Stuart Smith is an old man, propped up on a Zimmer frame in the morning darkness. He is delicate on his feet, relearning how to walk after surgery on one hip and both legs, watching in silence as they raid his workshop, the product of his life's work. It was 5am and they numbered around 30. They broke the chains on the fence surrounding the building They quietly moved past a giant concrete tank, sucking water through a bore and feeding it through the building. Decades earlier, the old man earned the nickname Shotgun Smith for how aggressively he defended his garage from thieves. Now he is 92 years old, living alone in his West Auckland lair, pondering what to say when they discover what he has in his tanks. It happened by pure coincidence. A few weeks earlier, a boy was alone and wandering the streets in the West Auckland suburb of Massey. Next to a Caltex petrol station, he came across a crumbling old garage, paint peeling from the exterior. Something caught his eye. Near the petrol station forecourt, a creature wriggled in the gutter. It looked like a quarter, but larger. Most strikingly, it had a steely dark shell. The boy went home and told his dad. When they returned, his father wrapped the creature in a sweatshirt and they brought it home to their fish tank. He rang the Department of Conservation, which sent someone out to investigate. The official immediately recognised what he was looking at. A West Australian smooth marin a species not found in New Zealand. Word got around, and several agencies discussed next steps. They knew that, based on where the marin was found, there were likely to be more. A biosecurity report prepared two months later said marin have the ability to become widespread throughout New Zealand, invade many habitats, affect ecosystems, and all levels of the food chain. They needed to move quickly, so the raid happened 16 days later, early on a Monday. For most of the day, Smith watched. At first, he said nothing. Then, they'd figure out what he was up to, and he knew the jig was up. About a decade ago, a writer named Brian Winters was told about a communist who loved to fish. It caught his interest. He'd left quite a lot of money, Winters says, and part of his last will and testament was he wanted a book published telling his story. The communist, Stuart Smith, 
had even suggested a title. That pommy bastard. The life of J. Stuart Smith was long, colourful and driven by an uncommonly strong sense of purpose. By the time he died in 2008, aged 95, Smith had left a permanent legacy in his adopted country's bloodstream, its network of ponds, rivers and lakes. This account of Smith's life and legacy is based on official documents and hundreds of pages of Smith's personal notes obtained by Stuff, as well as interviews with people who knew him, several of whom requested anonymity. They reveal an enigmatic figure, largely forgotten in New Zealand's recent history, but one who has had an outsized and permanent impact on the country's environment. Imagine if one guy was responsible for the introduction of rats, possums, rabbits, stoats and pigs to New Zealand, says one former official familiar with Smith's activities. Stuart Smith was pretty much that guy, but he just did it to freshwater ecosystems. Over the course of four decades, Smith released thousands of fish into rivers, lakes and ponds. The vast majority of his liberations were illegal. He was prosecuted at least twice, but continued his releases well into old age. Age, in fact, made him bolder, more audacious, culminating in the 2005 raid on his home, which likely stopped what Smith planned to be his last and most significant liberation. He's had more impact on freshwater than any other single human being another former official who pursued Smith says. He was really one of New Zealand's arch-environmental criminals. For much of his adult life, Stuart Smith would breed exotic fish in a network of tanks behind his workshop in Massey, West Auckland, and release them into waterways. He outfitted his car, initially a Ford Zephyr, and then a larder Neva with oxygenated fish tanks that could keep fish alive for days. Then he would liberate the fish wherever he could, with or without the permission of landowners. He would recruit accomplices, sometimes adults, sometimes children, in raids on farms, dams and public waterways. Smith diligently chronicled his activities. According to his own records, Smith was personally responsible for liberating more than 15,000 fish between 1964 and 1987 in hundreds of places. Most were in the Upper North Island, between Rotorua and Kerikeri, but he ventured as far south as Christchurch. He liberated fish in small farm ponds and major rivers, pristine dune lakes and city water supplies. His address book bulged with people who asked him for fish, which he always supplied, sometimes as far away as Wellington. He would smuggle fish eggs into the country by hiding them in his pocket while going through customs, and once in the vegetable pantry of a passenger ship. He established a new species in New Zealand from a handful of fish eggs an associate sent to him in the post. He was clearly a hugely resourceful and tenacious man with an incredible amount of passion and drive, one of the former officials said. 
it's such a shame when you think how that energy could have been used towards something positive. Most of the fish Smith liberated flourished. Much like New Zealand's native land birds, its freshwater fish had evolved in an environment with few natural predators. New species can shake up an ecosystem that evolved in a delicate equilibrium. And in New Zealand, the result has been chaotic. To understand why Smith did what he did, it pays to understand the long-simmering battle over who gets to fish what. New Zealand has several dozen native freshwater fish, most of which are nocturnal, discreet, and tucked away in streams far from civilization. Few of them grow larger than 10 centimetres. They don't make for great angling. Recognising this, early European settlers decided to bring their favourite sports fish with them. Trout. Trout flourished in New Zealand's cooler waters, with limited competition from native species. The trout fishery is now so prosperous, it attracts anglers from around the world. Some immigrants, including Smith, did not grow up trout fishing, which in England was a sport reserved for the elite. They fished for so-called coarse fish, like rudd, perch, tench and carp, so named for their rough skin. This class divide bled into New Zealand. While trout soon followed the immigrants, attempts to bring in coarse fish were rebuffed, largely because they would compete with trout. And so Smith, who paid his dues to New Zealand's Communist Party for much of his life, and had a pathological dislike for social hierarchy, sought to equalise the playing field. Smith's liberations began in the early 1960s, work he did concurrently with running his commercial garage on Triangle Road in Massey. He started with one of the most damaging coarse fish, perch. Perch were already in New Zealand, having been brought from Tasmania in the 1860s, and were predominantly found in Canterbury and Otago. They were not widespread, for good reason. Perch are carnivorous and have a ravenous appetite. Not only do they eat other fish, they also eat each other. Smith likely started with perch because he had easy access to them. In 1905, a population had been legally introduced into Lake Rotorua in Hamilton City and had survived. Smith, with the help of two local boys, took perch from the lake and spread them around Auckland. His notes show he introduced hundreds of perch to Auckland lakes in the 1960s, primarily in Western Springs and Lake Pupuki. In 1965, Smith broadened his liberations to include tench, which he obtained from a contact in Waimate in South Canterbury. He started with four which was enough to establish a breeding stock at what he called his office pond, behind his garage. As his operation ramped up, Smith started breeding goldfish, a type of carp, though not the type commonly kept as a pet, koi carp, gambusia and golden orf. But it was another fish that became Smith's signature, rudd. Rudd are a stocky freshwater fish with coarse skin and ruby-red fins. They are prolific breeders, 
releasing thousands of eggs at a time. They primarily eat aquatic plants, preferring natives over exotics, meaning they share a diet with native freshwater species. For that reason, rudd are sometimes called the possums of the waterways. There had been no rudd in the southern hemisphere until Smith liberated them into a pond at Wainui School, north of Auckland, in 1969. Over the course of 20 years, Smith released more than 10,000 rudd, 2,300 tench, 1,000 perch and hundreds of koi, goldfish and orf. He had his favourite spots. Among them was Waikato's Waiho River, where he once released 2,000 rudd in one go at the Te Aroha boat ramp. Although he typically avoided major waterways, likely because it increased the odds he would be seen, he still managed to populate them with fish. One strategy was to liberate fish into a nearby drain or stream, which, upon the next flood, would sweep fish into the river. Smith was so prolific, it became difficult to keep track of where the fish were ending up. He was always moving around, one former associate says. He would say, I've done this, I've done that, places all around the country. He even told me he put a whole lot of stuff in the South Island, that he'd moved koi carp to a particular lake on the West Coast. You don't know whether it's true or if he was making it up. Authorities noticed the sudden appearance of rudd, a species never before seen in New Zealand. They knew who was responsible. Smith regularly bragged about his liberations. He was even profiled in the Auckland Star newspaper under the headline, Rudd Doing Well, Now for Gudgeon, complete with a photo of Smith. Not long afterwards, in 1974, Smith was prosecuted for the first time. His fish were destroyed, his tanks were poisoned, and his car was confiscated. The setback stopped his liberations for four years. Fascism, he wrote in his diary, is a long way from dead. That period, however, came with vindication. In 1975, Rudd was declared acclimatised in Auckland and Waikato, essentially recognising that it was here to stay. To this day, Auckland Waikato is the only region where Rudd is established to the extent it is not considered noxious, a feat entirely due to Smith. Smith's fish continued to spread, even though his liberations had paused. When he started up again, he realised his fish had been too prosperous. He decided to start releasing perch again, under the logic they would predate on rudd and tench. It was at this point he started falling afoul of his few allies. Not only had he returned to spreading perch, he was also releasing koi carp, a bottom feeder notorious for damaging waterways. He was talking about importing gudgeon, and even flirted with bringing in pike, a ferocious carnivore likely to dominate any freshwater body it could find. Smith's notes end in 1988, when he was prosecuted once again, this time by the Auckland Acclimatisation Society. His fish were destroyed, and his equipment and notes were seized. He was fined $4,950, and his beloved Lada Neva was confiscated. Although he had stopped taking notes, 
there were numerous sightings of Smith around rivers and lakes in the early 2000s. He was hard to miss, an octogenarian roaring about the countryside in a new $40,000 off-road vehicle. A 2003 report produced internally for the Department of Conservation and Seen by Stuff notes several of these sightings. The report was ostensibly about threats to Auckland's freshwater ecosystems. A major one of those threats, it concluded, and referenced by name dozens of times, was Stuart Smith. Today on Newsable, are the Waz in trouble? What the Warriors need to do to get back on track after a month without any wins. Plus, the story of the Canterbury cocaine cartel and introducing the most boring man in the world. Would he be the cure to sleeplessness? For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts. There's a pristine lake near the Kaipara Harbour at the northern edges of the Auckland region called Lake Rototoa. It's one of a group of dune lakes dotting the western coastline. Rototoa is the best of them. It is the largest, deepest lake in Auckland and, for a while, the only one dominated by native fish. Among its population were dwarf Inanga and dune lake Galaxias, both of which are highly rare and on the brink of extinction. Then Stuart Smith started his liberations. In 1970, his notes show, he liberated more than a hundred rudd into Rotator. They prospered. So much so that 30 years later, Smith returned with Perch in an effort to control the rudd he had unleashed. It proved to be a near-fatal blow for the lake. Rudd, which feed on native macrophytes, reduced the lake's water quality. Then the perch started dominating the native species. Between 2003 and 2011, monitoring showed dwarf inanga numbers had dropped by more than 99%, and the species is now functionally extinct in the lake. Corda numbers had dropped by 90%, and common bullies by 80%. The lake had also been a popular rainbow trout fishery, but almost immediately after perch were introduced, the fishery collapsed. It's a common story when exotic fish are introduced. Just like rats and possums on land, they tend to dominate whatever ecosystem they end up in. Competition between native species is very balanced in an ecosystem, says Dr Cindy Baker, a freshwater fish scientist at Niwa. They tend to have different niches, and it all works together well. Once you put these introduced fish in, you have more overlap in niches for certain species, and that's where you have more competition for food resources. Introduced fish have a significant effect on New Zealand's freshwater biodiversity, Baker says, particularly in lakes, from which they are hard to remove. He was an old man now, but Stuart Smith had a plan. He could no longer roam the countryside, but he could still breed fish which is why he dreaded what the authorities would do when they looked inside his tanks. He knew they would find 600 gudgeon, a species never seen before in New Zealand, 
which he was planning to release in Lake Topol as his final act. Smith had talked about this plan for a long time. He first mentioned it offhandedly in a 1972 news article in the Auckland Star, then again in a 1988 article. But it wasn't clear how serious he was. In the twilight of his life, he had wanted to breed enough gudgeon to fill the lake, approximately 10,000. It would have been horrific, one of the former officials who had knowledge of Smith's plans said. It's not entirely clear how Smith smuggled gudgeon into the country. An investigation concluded he had likely received them from an associate who had since died. Due to a lack of evidence he had imported them himself, Smith wasn't prosecuted. An internal biosecurity report said gudgeon were considered likely to become widespread throughout New Zealand in all lowland freshwater systems and were ranked as having potentially high impacts on both native and introduced fish species that inhabit these environments. The day after the raid, gudgeon was declared a pest species, allowing them to be destroyed. Smith's tanks were cleansed, leaving him with nothing. Gudgeon were also found in a pond near Helensville and exterminated there too. Smith had told one associate he released gudgeon in potentially dozens of other waterways, including the Hikutaya Cut, which would have been devastating. It's connected to the Waiho River, which, as the biosecurity report said, would mean the feasibility of eradication from these waterways is extremely low. A sweep of those waterways found no sign of gudgeon, although no extensive search was undertaken in the Hikutaya Cut or the Waiho. To this day, it's unclear if gudgeon were ever released. Following Smith's death in 2008, authorities returned to his lair to destroy whatever he had left in his tanks. They were let in by Smith's nephew, his closest relative, who was not close to his uncle. They expected to find more gudgeon, but didn't. Just a few schools of rut. Nevertheless, the tanks were drenched with a lime solution to destroy any trace of life, and a sucker truck dealt with the contaminated water, ending the complicated legacy of Stuart Smith. Like us all, I think he was an inconsistent personality, writer Brian Winters says. He enjoyed fishing, and genuinely felt that spreading these fish around was going to benefit people. I don't think he approached it like some evil ogre, thinking, I'm going to do harm to New Zealand by doing this. In his writing, Smith often talked about the joy of fishing, particularly for children. He believed New Zealand was deficient in this sense. Apart from eels, which he believed were too scary and snake-like for kids, there was no way for a child to grow up fishing in the way he did. Curiously, Smith himself was not a regular angler, even though an entire coarse fishing subculture had emerged in his wake. He came to some of our meetings, said John Josevel, a founding member of the West Auckland Coarse Fishing Club, which began in the early 1980s. He was very well read, and he didn't suffer fools gladly. He didn't do a lot of fishing himself, for enjoyment or pleasure. 
Stuart Smith is still advancing his cause beyond the grave. Every couple of years, several coarse fishing clubs receive a $5,000 donation from the S. Smith Trust, financial documents show. Last year, the West Auckland Club received $10,000. It pays for trophies and catering and stationery and other things that keep the club going. Stuart Smith is a boy, roaming the streets of East London with his fishing rod. He often fishes alone in the Ley Canal, while the other boys play rugby after school. He sometimes finds little ponds where he fishes for perch, pike and, best of all, gudgeon. When he hooks a gudgeon, he sells it to other fishermen to use as bait. He loved his parents, even when money issues ruined things. His father was a gambler, he wrote, and once loudly abused his mother, while Smith listened in the next room. But there was always fishing. My childhood in England was happy, he later wrote, largely due to those hours spent fishing. Smith was only 15 when his father told the boy that he and his brother would be going to New Zealand alone. His coarse fishing days and his childhood was over. But it didn't have to be for the next generation. He said to me once, the greatest pleasure a boy can have is fishing, one person who knew Smith said. He was always yearning for that boyhood pleasure he had fishing in the canals as a boy. He wanted to replicate that here. That was The Liberator on the Long Read from Stuff, written by Charlie Mitchell and read and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.